Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and joining me, possibly recovering from a candy hangover, is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. You know, I wish I was recovering from a candy hangover, actually. Uh, don't have kids in the house, no kids here. So, uh, also, I don't know if you can hear this banging coming in the background. Hopefully, my mic's not picking it up. Because it uh, so, seems like my neighbor's going to give me a construction hangover. But anyway, yeah, no kids uh, to give me a candy hangover. But I was at the no, game no last night. No mini Kit Kats going around in the media gondola at Scotiabank Arena last night? No, actually, that's what I was going to say. I was at the Raptors game last night um, doing our media thing. And unless I was mistaken, I did not see any candy bowls or anything uh, of the such. So pretty disappointing in that respect. I didn't really get the uh the usual festive mood of halloween did not consume me which i mean it's not the worst thing in the world by no means complaining but would i have liked some candy yes could i have gone and purchased it myself i suppose <laughs> what about you Do well you, i we, guess when he's still was, too young to trick-or-treat we were gonna take her and then she was kind of sick and not in the best of moods Really didn't want to put on the hot dog costume that we had. Oh, that would have been cute. It was raining outside, uh, so we decided to just stay in. But she really enjoyed giving out candy to all the kids that came. That's cute. Our, still had a lot of fun with it. But That's uh, cute. yeah, hopefully, hopefully next year we'll do it properly. So uh, a good time was had by all. A successful <laughs> Halloween, all told, uh, including for the Toronto Raptors that you witnessed last night. We're yeah. eventually going to get into talking about uh, the team that they played last night. I'll say just off the jump, we are going to start trying to transition to two episodes a week. And in doing that, we're going to try and narrow the scope of these episodes a bit. So we're not taking such a big picture look at the league, but we're going to try and hone in on one or two teams and keep these episodes a little bit shorter. So, on this episode, we wanted to talk about the team that I think we can both agree has been the best in the Eastern Conference so far. And a team in the that, NBA. Yeah, probably in the NBA. Uh, but seeing as this is going to be an Eastern Conference-centric episode, right. uh, we'll confine it to the East and say we are definitely going to be talking about the best team in the Eastern Conference right now. And the team that, to my mind, has been probably the most perplexing team in the East through the first couple weeks of the season. And that's when we'll get into talking about those Atlanta Hawks. But first off, another bit of Eastern Conference news. The Philadelphia 76ers, who are starting to turn things around after a really miserable start to the season. Interestingly enough, they're doing so with Joel Embiid on the shelf behind a couple of volcanic performances from Tyrese Maxey, PJ Tucker slotting in as a starting center, Harden continuing to do his thing, DeAnthony Melton jumping into the starting lineup and showing out. Good things happening for them on the court, finally. But off the court, they have been stripped of two second round draft picks due to impermissible early contact before the official free agency window with PJ Tucker and Daniel House. So because I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, I, I'm just going to lay it out to you with a couple of questions, basically. All right. And, and here's how I'll frame it. So the, the investigation into the Knicks deal with Jalen Brunson this past offseason is ongoing. And they're basically investigating the Knicks for exactly the same thing, just negotiating outside of the official, you know, permitted negotiating window. And my guess is just that the Knicks are going to wind up losing one second rounder. Like that's the going punishment for this type of infraction, right? And I think the Sixers got hit with two because it was two separate players. Yeah. But if we look at, you know, like the Heat lost one second rounder for early contact with Kyle Lowry last year. The Bulls lost one for doing the same with Lonzo Ball. The Bucks lost one for tampering with uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich the year prior. And... I, unless my memory is failing me, I think the last time a team was actually stripped of a first round pick was the Joe Smith fiasco with Minnesota back in, back in the early in 2000s. like ninety nine or two thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which multiple uh, first rounders? No, or was it just five? One? Five yeah. first round picks, but 
you know, to be clear, that was like much more sinister than what we're talking about here. Like basically what happened there was the Timberwolves signed him to this like substantially below market deal to try and circumvent the cap while having this wink, wink agreement to like make him whole under the table. And they got found out and they got stripped of five first round picks. But I don't think that since then any team has actually been docked a first rounder by the league. Obviously, there isn't going to be a punishment nearly that severe. Uh, we're just talking about negotiations that are, you know, taking place slightly earlier than they're supposed to. But my two questions for you are, okay, so one, should the NBA just do away with these rules altogether, lengthen the legal negotiating window so players can just start talking to teams as soon as their seasons are over, since that seems to be happening anyway, and it's presumably very hard to police? Uh, that's question one. And question two, for as long as these rules are in place, do you think the NBA should take into consideration the stature of the players in question so that, you know, in this case, for example, the Knicks would face a stiffer penalty for tampering with a high level starting point guard than the Sixers would or did for tampering with a 37-year-old defensive specialist and an eighth man playing 15 minutes a game? I think it's an interesting question. I think it's a slippery slope if you do that. But if they were to do that, I think it would be interesting if they somehow tied it to the size of the contract the player ends up signing, which, you know, should be in line really with their level of stardom or level of impact on the court. But I think it would be too subjective to get into, you know what I mean? Like who, who at the league office is going to determine, okay, Jalen Brunson is this level of player. And then therefore is worth this much in penalty. And PJ Tucker is a six on our scale of 10. And you know what I mean? Like, I think it just, it's too subjective and, and just not rigid enough, so to speak. So I think if they were to do that, the way they should do it is actually tying it to the size of the contract. Like if you tamper, Mm -hmm. if you grossly tamper to the, because that's the other thing I'll, I'll mention quickly too, is like, we all know this. Everyone tampers. I don't like this idea that you're going to come up with some punishment that's going to completely eradicate tampering in the NBA or pro sports in general is just so incredibly naive. Like you are not going to be able to keep tabs on every private conversation, especially private conversations between players themselves. Like that's where most of the quote unquote so-called tampering actually happens with guys putting things in each other's ears. And yeah, our execs and coach and whoever may be involved in the conversations with their own players about the conversations that players having with other players. Sure. I'm sure it happens. And when there's a paper trail of the executives involved in all that and agents, then you can actually get in trouble for it. But on the most clandestine level of players having private conversations with each other in various settings, like you're just not going to eradicate tampering. It's not going to happen. And so I don't, I'm of the opinion the NBA doesn't even need to come up with more stringent punishments because I don't think it would actually do anything other than reminding teams to do it in a way so that they don't get caught, I guess. And like keeping some shred of hope for those most naive among us. Yeah. But well, if, that's why I would, I would say just do away with the rules. If you're acknowledging that it's going to happen no matter what you do, yeah. then, you know, having the rules in place with this pretty toothless enforcement mechanism i mean i guess it's not totally toothless like losing second round picks is something but what is the point especially because we know these aren't the only teams doing it they're just the ones who are being sloppy about it and getting caught and is that really the thing that we want to penalize here versus you know just saying let's allow these players to negotiate with teams and try and find the best deal for themselves once their seasons are done and also it's like the, the thing i always laugh about is when people bring up the whole unfair thing, right? So like Philly with Tucker, you can you can talk about, well, you look at the communication and it was unfair because they had the head start. And then because they had this head start and they were talking to him before, you know, before they were allowed to and other teams were following the rules and just sitting there waiting, like that's why they were able to sign him. Do you, not, like, does it not cross your mind that if PJ Tucker or whoever, insert player, insert team, was having those conversations ahead of the deadline and was that interested in Hellbent on going to that specific destination, you really think it wouldn't have happened if there was no, like, you know what I mean? Maybe they figured some things out before the deadline and like ironed out some details, but 
This idea that like, oh, well, it's this unfair advantage and that's why like this team got them. It's like, no, like they would have got them anyway. So what are we really doing here? Like what are, we're, yeah, we're just punishing the fact that they didn't, a guy that they knew they were going to get, they started talking to him too early and like started arranging things too early. And it's like, I, I guess that that's in and of itself a slippery slope. Cause then you can say, well, then why have rules at all? But I'm just not as passionate about this particular subject, which is, look, it's rare for me. I mean, how many times have I gone on rants about things that I've probably surprised you, you didn't even care about, or like, maybe we're wondering why I even cared or was so passionate about these. This is one where it's the opposite. Like, I'm just not passionate about this because I don't think any rule they come up with will eradicate it. I don't really care that they tamper in the first place. But to your original point, if they are going to do something about it, I think it should be tied to the size of the contract. You you sign a guy to a one year mid level except like or whatever eight year eight million dollars whatever it is, I don't know. You lose a, a conditional second round pick or something. You or it's a are, fine or yeah. yeah exactly. If you you're proven to have tampered with the two hundred and twenty million dollar free agent that summer, you lose. I don't know at least a first. Like I don't I don't know, but. If they even wanted to consider doing it in a way where you're really going to discourage teams from leaving a paper trail at the very least, yeah. they've got to rethink how they come up with these punishments. If you are going to dock first round picks too, you got to find a way. Like you don't want to take a first round draft slot away from the incoming class of draft. That's the other right? thing that bothers me because it just happened this past year too, right? Who was it that lost... Uh, well, it was the Heat and the Bulls, but I, right. I think it's it's different with second round picks. Like, it, there's not really a clear benefit to being drafted in the second round versus just signing as a yeah. as a free agent. In fact, sometimes there's disadvantages. Agent. So, yeah, right. So, obviously, first round, you know, being tied to the rookie scale, there are huge benefits to getting drafted in the first round. So, I think in that situation, if that were ever to happen, they would have to find a way to have a, a 30th first round pick like inserted into the draft somehow. And then do you give it to the team that had the first pick? Do you just automatically give it to the team that had the worst record? Do you give it to the yeah. team that lost the, the player? The aggrieved party, yeah, right. maybe. But but then even that, like I find weird because it's like, what if the team that lost the player wasn't actually the team that was even in the mix to keep? You know what I mean? What if it was like, so say there's three teams, like incumbent team, they're going to lose this guy no matter what. Then there's team B, who's in the mix, like probably not going to get him, but they're at least in the mix, more so than his incumbent team was. Then there's team C, they're the team that tampered, they're the team that got him. I would argue team B is actually more aggrieved than the incumbent team. I Yeah, again, this is why this is why these punishments were stupid and they should right. just do away with these rules. Because honestly, at the end of the day, and I, I'm not saying that the league is necessarily looking at things in these terms, but I think we can both agree that the goal here should be to allow players to earn what they're worth, to get the best possible deal that they can get. And it's like, okay, if you have these these sort of implicit rules that nobody's really following, or maybe only some people are following, you know, if you are a free agent who's playing things by the book, you and your agent are playing things by the book, and you're like, well, we're not allowed to talk to any teams until, you know, 6 p.m. on on June 30th or whatever it is. So we're just going to wait. And then by then, all of these other deals have already been agreed to in secret. And now you're kind of left out in the cold. Like you, you, in this case, the way that things are right now, you can't be a player who's playing by the rules because you're going to get screwed out of exactly. a lot of money potentially. So, And same goes for an agent. Like, like you say, like you don't exactly. want to be the agent who's just sitting around while, while, other, while players are talking to other players about how their agents are already having talks and, you know, greasing the wheels for them. Do you want to be the agent that's like, you know, sorry, man, I know I, I wish I could do that for you. Like agent X is doing for player X, but yeah. you know, we want to, we got to follow the rules. Like that agent's probably losing that client. Right. And you also don't want to be the team. That's like, oh no, 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 we can't negotiate until the free agency period begins. And then it's like, okay, if you're the Knicks, you're not sweating that second round pick because you have Jalen Brunson. Like you're still coming out ahead in this scenario. It's just, it's just pointless, man. So let's, I think let's do away with these rules is where I come down on that. But I do think the the notion of penalizing teams more for a larger contracts is funny because you would inevitably have these incompetent front offices around the league. And I, there aren't really very many of them left, left if, yeah. if any, but 
let's just throw out the Sacramento Kings. You know, like, <laughs> I was gonna say. No, I mean, do credit to Monty McNair. I actually think he's done a pretty good job since taking over there. But like a team like that, a dysfunctional organization where they grossly overpay for a free agent, like bid against themselves. Let's like the Pistons did with Marvin Bagley, you know, it's like, and then they get doubly penalized because the punishment is harsher because they gave a player like a contract that was worth more than their, their actual production. So. In that case, the punishment should be that an extra year gets tacked onto the contract. <laughs> um, Anyway, okay, I said I didn't want to spend too much time yeah. talking about that, and like here we are 15 minutes later. So let's talk about what we, what we actually came here to talk about today, which first off is the Milwaukee Bucks, <laughs> 6-0, and the lone undefeated team in the NBA. Obviously, they've done all this without Chris Middleton, and they've done it with the best defense in basketball. Yeah, and, and also uh, not even not even to make a joke of it, but also without Pat Connaughton, who is like... Yeah is you know obviously he's no chris middleton he's not one of their big three um and i'm not trying to put him in that group but he is an important part of the rotation like not having him for a game and being this good already in addition to not having middleton that is that is something for sure like he's a he's an important part of their rotation and they are not a particularly deep team as it is so uh, i do think that matters and like it hasn't always been pretty their 17th in offensive efficiency right now, that's about where I would have expected them to be. Uh, just given, like Middleton's their lead ball handler, right? And Holiday has come on really strong in the last couple of games after a, a pretty rough offensive start. But at the end of the day, I, I love Drew. He's a magnificent defender and a really good third option to have offensively. But he is not, in my mind, qualified to be a lead guard on a contending team. So I think, yeah, some offensive struggles were to be expected, but the defense, man, I, and I just, I'll start by talking about Brooke Lopez because I think probably coming into the season, my number one concern, uh, and it was picking nits because to me, this was the team that had the strongest championship case coming into the season. We talked about that. The one thing I was kind of honing in on was, okay, Brooke Lopez has been such an important part of what they do defensively over these last few years. We saw how badly their defense slipped without him last season and then how good it looked again when he came back in the playoffs. But he's 34, coming off a major back surgery. And if he just like isn't Brooke Lopez anymore, then I feel like that could have a huge impact and, and take a big chunk out of this team's title chances. And then he comes back looking, no joke, better than ever. Like, this is as Dude. good as I've ever seen him play defensively. He has been probably the best rim protector in basketball. And we can get into kind of the schematic changes that the Bucks defense has made. So much of that is made possible by him and what he's able to do as the last line of defense. So, yeah. And also and, just to, to add on to that, and I know Brooke Lopez is – defensive presence goes far beyond just the actual blocks he's recording but coming into this season 34 year old Brooke Lopez his career high in blocks was 2.2 a game he's averaging 3.3 a game so in addition to all the like positional stuff he's doing in addition to all the shots he is deterring and or altering at the rim and just the suffocating presence he is back there He's also actually making the plays too. Like 3.3 blocks a game is nuts. Yeah. And, you know, to, to broaden it out to just like shot contests at the basket, he is currently contesting eight and a half field goal attempts at the rim per game, which is more than anyone other than Nikola Jokic. But unlike Jokic, he's actually having a huge impact, a huge impact on whether those shots actually go in. Uh, opponents are shooting... 51% at the rim on that massive volume of attempts. And the Bucks basically, and this is like, the Bucks are really fascinating to me throughout the Buttonholzer era because I feel like they come into pretty much every season with these big concepts that they want to implement. And people get frustrated because Bud is fairly stringent about them and like very doctrinaire a lot of the time about like, no, this is what we do. And we're going to hammer this one thing, even though I think he's become a lot more flexible in the last few years and more so than people are willing to give him credit for. Um, 
I just think it's so interesting. Like a couple of years ago, they come in and they're like, okay, we've been doing this thing. It's been four out, one in, where Giannis is basically like the only guy who we want operating inside the arc and we're going to space the floor around him. Now we're going to have like two two in, three out, where one guy is going to be occupying the dunker spot almost at all times to try and create some easier passing reads and like declutter the arc. They do that. They wind up winning the championship that season. Now it's like, okay, the, the defense that Bud implemented, the base defense that he implemented in 2018 involved protecting the absolute bejesus out of the paint and as a consequence, giving up a boatload of threes. No team has allowed a higher three-point attempt rate over the last four years than the Bucks have. They come into this season saying, oh, we don't want to do that anymore. We actually really want to like take away the three-point line. And it's one thing to say that and another thing to actually go and do it. But here the Bucks are six games into the season. They're still suppressing shots at the rim. They're still fifth in the league in suppressing rim volume, but they're second in suppressing opponent three-point attempt rate. And it's not super complicated what they're doing. Like they're just sending less help and really trusting the guys who are involved in the central action to handle it on their own. Because like in the past, they're still playing the deep drop, but it wasn't just about that, right? Like in the past, they would play the deep drop and they would also be pinching in on pick and rolls and stunting and digging aggressively on drives and doubling the post. And like, they're just not doing that anymore. And they're saying, okay, we've got Drew Holiday on the ball. Physical point of attack defender who can really navigate screens. Wesley and who, by Matthews, the way... I know, I know what you were saying about being yeah. a, like the lead guard at this stage of his career, and I agree with you on that. But Drew Holiday defensively has not lost a goddamn step. Like, just an absolute terrifying menace still at the point of attack, even yeah. in mismatches. Like, the, the combination of him, Giannis, and Brooke Lopez, and the level each three, like all three are playing at defensively right now, is it's insane. It's obvious why they have the number one defense because these three guys individually are playing just unbelievable defense and you put them all together on the court at the same time. Like, how do you score enough to beat these guys? Yeah, and it's, I mean, the way that it works in harmony, you know, like the, that yeah. three-man defensive foundation, it's just like the pieces kind of fit together perfectly and that's what enables them to, to play the style of defense where... They don't have to overhelp. And I don't know. I mean, it, you, their defense has been really, really successful over the last few years. So I don't want to nitpick at what they were doing then. But I think like to, to see almost a simplicity with which they've gone from like allowing all these threes to allowing so few of them is kind of jarring where it's like, yeah, you have like <laughs> maybe the best point of attack defender in basketball. And one of, if not the best rim protector in basketball. Like, trust those guys to do their jobs and maybe don't pull in all that much help from the weak side corner or the strong side corner even. And just, and like, that'll bite them sometimes. Like, I was, uh, you know, their game against the Hawks, there were a couple instances where Drew was like forcing Trey to his left hand and there, there will be a defender on like the, the strong side wing. And in this case, they just weren't moving. They're just standing there glued to the shooter. It was like a couple times DeAndre Hunter basically on the wing, who's a sort of threatening shooter that you maybe feel not that bad about helping off of. No help. And it's like one of those times Brooke was late on the back line and Trey got an easy layup. And one of those times Brooke was on time and Trey missed a layup. It's like, it's, it's not always going to be perfect, but I think the philosophy generally is pretty sound it's just incumbent on like the on-ball defenders to really fight through those screens and give pursuit from behind. And it's very much incumbent on Brook Lopez as the last line of defense to do his job. And my God, has he been doing it so far? I feel like he's a huge part of what's allowed them to, to make this big philosophical shift and actually execute it. Yeah. I mean, he's back to like, I don't even want to say he's back to his best defensively. Cause as you said, he's actually, defending better than ever he's a more terrifying defensive presence in the middle than he's ever been before and that is saying something having said all that I think Giannis has still been their best defender because I think Giannis has probably been 
the best defensive player in the league so far as part of him being head and shoulders above anyone right now as the best player in the league, which I don't think surprises either one of us. But just the the level with which Giannis is playing, the defensive level, all three of them are playing at, uh, the team as a whole, and then being able to insert Chris Middleton into that at some point, mm-hmm. deepening the rotation a bit when you get Connaughton back as well. I was thinking about it yesterday prepping for this episode, and I was thinking like, you know, we both picked the Bucks to win the title. But if it's possible, I think we underrated the Bucks in picking them to win the championship. Because if you remember when we had the conversation about it, we said that, you know, it's not like we, and I know they're still not flawless, but it's, like, it's not like we saw them as this like flawless, clear number one championship favorite where it's like they're the team to beat. It was more so about reasons why we trusted them as opposed to all these other contenders in this really deep field of contenders that had a lot more question marks, whether it be health or whatever it is. And so the Bucks, I know at least the way I spoke of them, it was almost like, because I trust them most and Giannis is there, like they became my championship pick by default, as opposed mm-hmm. to me saying, this is clearly the best team in basketball and that's why I'm picking them to win the championship. And yeah, six games might be way too early into an 82 game season to say, well, I should have actually gone stronger with it because they are by far the best team in basketball. But my God, they look like the best team in basketball. And like, again, to be doing what they're doing before Middleton has even gotten there, the guy that's going to give them the kind of release valve offensively they don't have right now when it comes to like a a shot creator who can create something from nothing. Like he'll complete what they've already got there so well. And even if the offense never hums the way, you know, the elite offenses do, It'll be good enough that when combined with this defense, like to me, they are very clearly right now the best team in basketball with the best player in basketball, who's also the best defensive player in basketball, who's also leading a team that is by far the best defensive team in basketball. Like there's just not a lot to nitpick here. They are that good. Yeah, Giannis averaging a cool 34, 13, 5, and 2 (laughs) while remaining an absolute terror on defense. He's... He's insane. And the thing with Middleton is he is the guy that unlocks Giannis as a roller, right? Like Drew does his best. And again, he's done quite a good job of it the last couple of games. But on the whole, he's just not really putting a ton of pressure on a defense as a pick and roll ball handler in a way that is going to prevent that defense from loading up on Giannis's role. Most of the time, it's like they're going to live with playing that in a deep drop where they're forcing Giannis to pop instead of roll. Like that's what the Hawks did against him when they played on the weekend is like, Drew, you can have all you can eat from the middle of the floor. Like we'll dare you to beat us that way. We're not giving you that pocket pass to Giannis. We're not giving you the lob. We're going to sit on that. And I think Middleton makes that that a much more difficult calculus. 100%. I was going to say one more interruption. Drew Holiday is actually averaging a career high in assists. Yeah, I mean, look, he's he has the ball in his hands yeah. a ton, right? Like that's yeah. that's part of the reason. And I look, Holiday is not a bad playmaker by any means, but again, as a lead guard, it's like you got to be able to, I think, bend the defense with your ability to hit pull up shots. And he's he's got different ways of creating advantages, right? Like his strength is a real form of advantage creation, and like that allows him to do some mismatch hunty things that can really collapse a defense like that game against the Hawks. And we're going to get into talking about the Hawks, but like he was just seeking out Trey young and obliterating him and creating penetration that way and collapsing the defense from the inside out. Like he has that ability to, you know, despite not being an a level passer to draw enough defensive attention that those reads become easier for him. And that's where those assists are coming from. I think it's just like a lot of inside out passing. So yeah, I I think the the offense is continue is going to continue to be clunky until Middleton gets back, but it's like Giannis can kind of carry you there and in the meantime, they're just going to be extremely difficult to score against. Like to take it back to sort of the defensive philosophy, uh, no team has given up fewer no dribble field goals this season. Wow. Like that's that's kind of what they make you do, right? Is like, yeah. yeah, we'll get every defense in this day and age with just like how good offenses around the league 
it's always giving up something. Like we talk about this all the time, right? You're never going to be perfect. You got to decide what you're willing to give up. And what they're willing to give up is like shots that you have to dribble into. Driving, floaters, pull-up mid-rangers, even even pull-up threes from time to time, but they're not going to give you those easy catch-and-shoot looks or those like passes to roll men that they're just going to like finish on the dive. Like that's that's what they take away, and I think that's pretty sound, and obviously it requires you to have the personnel to pull it off, but they very much do. So I think it's a really good marriage of of personnel and scheme, and they're executing it beautifully right now, and that's why they're 6-0. and What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. So you want to talk about the team that definitely does not have the personnel or the scheme to pull anything of the such off? Are you are you that down on Atlanta? They don't have the personnel or the scheme to pull anything off? Like I no. I um, I mean defensively they've been awful, which I guess it shouldn't be that surprising if you were a little skeptical about Atlanta. I've been one of the more optimistic Hawks observers over the last couple of years, going back to what I saw them do defensively a couple of years ago, which mm-hmm. eventually led them to the conference finals. So I'd say definitely disappointing defensively to start the year. I think they're 26th in defensive efficiency. Look, I mean, we've talked so much about how it's it's always going to be tough to construct a passable defense with Trey Young on the court, but the Hawks have done it before. It's proving especially tough this season, and Trey obviously is is the biggest reason for that. Like, it's one thing to just be bad defensively, which he is, to not have the strength, the size, maybe the lateral move, like whatever it is that goes in, like tool, like physical toolbox stuff that might limit you defensively. But it's one thing to pair those limitations with just like the most ridiculous decision making defensively sometimes and it it's such a bad combo and like a perfect example monday night hawks are in toronto to play the raptors there's this one play where i can't remember who passed it so the raptors are inbounding it after a hawks make or maybe a defensive rebound i can't remember what it was i, anyway, I know exactly the play that you're talking someone about. throws a pass to gary trent jr that looks like it's going to sail out of bounds gary trent jr keeps it but he's going to make a pretty acrobatic play on the sideline just past half court to even catch it and keep it in bounds. Okay. The average person, let alone the average NBA player probably thinks, Oh, it might go up, but also like, just let him catch it, come down with it. I'm in good shape here because Gary Trent jr. Is trying desperately just to even catch this ball. And he's going to come down. Trey young, for whatever reason makes like an NFL safety chasing down, like a wide receiver sprint. To do, I don't know what, like you're not intercepting the ball. He's not catching and shooting it five feet above the ground with like 20 on the shot clock from mid court. Like I have no idea what the hell he was doing there. And then what happens? Gary Trent Jr. catches it, comes down. Trey Young has gambled for an, I don't even, I don't even want to say he gambled for a steal. Cause I don't even, like, I don't know what the hell he was doing there. Gambles for something. Tr- Gary Trent comes down almost by virtue of just catching it and then coming back to the ground has now already beaten Trey Young, who's like somehow sprinted by him. Gary Trent Jr. then penetrates a bit. Hawks are put in rotation. It ends up with, I don't remember who getting an absolutely wide open catch and shoot three, all stemming from this breakdown that absolutely did not need to happen on a play where it should have been the Raptors offense, actually a little out of sorts based on the desperation with which Gary Trent had to keep that ball in bounds. One very little play in a game where they ultimately lost by 30 as part of a seven-game sample so far where they're 4-3 and with the 26th best defense. But a play that I thought just perfectly encapsulates the issues here where it's like it's not just that Trey Young is bad at defense and, you know, arguably the worst defensive high-minute player in the NBA, but that he's just a weird decision-maker defensively. Now, there are plenty of Hawks who make weird defensive decisions, but when Trey Young does it, because he's already so bad naturally guarding, it's just a recipe for disaster. And 
it is a big reason why they are bottom six or bottom five, whatever they are now in, in defense. That is not even the possession that I thought you were oh. alluding to. There was another one where the Raptors had gotten a defensive rebound. Pascal Siakam had the ball in the backcourt. And Trey, inexplicably, just like runs up to the ball. He didn't even really make a play on the ball, which I don't know what he thought he was going to do. Like, I guess he was waiting for Pascal to put it on the floor and hoping to swipe it. But he ended up just running past Pascal. So he was then behind him. And Pascal, again, just dribbles the ball up the court. And then running back on defense, Trey again runs past him. And instead of picking him up above the break, like motions for John Collins to do it instead. And John Collins is like standing on the baseline guarding somebody else. And Pascal just swishes a pull-up three. It's like, I I don't know. Somehow his defense has been worse than ever to start this season. And look, there to me have been a lot of positives with him and DeJounte and the fit there. And one of them is that when they're both on the floor together, the Hawks' defense has actually been respectable. They have a 112 defensive rating, which is certainly not exceptional, but it's about league average. Uh, With DeJounte on and no Trey Young, that defensive rating is about 110. But with Trey on the floor and DeJounte Murray on the bench, that defensive rating is 130. And... That you know, to put that in context, the Grizzlies' league worst uh, defense right now allows 119.5 points per hundred possessions. So it is like vastly, vastly worse than the worst defense in basketball when Trey's out there without Dejounte Murray. And like, there are certain things that Murray can do to cover for Trey. Like one of them is just if they're defending on opposite sides of the floor, if Trey's like defending a side pick and roll, and he gets way behind trailing around a screen, which happens a lot. Murray is quick and long and he will slide over and he will take options away from the ball handler in that scenario and force him to make a pass. And he's quick enough to then like, if he was coming over to help at the nail and that kickout goes to his man on the wing, he's quick and long enough to make that recovery. Like those are the kinds of things that he can do to cover for Trey. But there's also only so much that he can do. And it's not that, you know, the Hawks don't have good backline defenders. I think Capella and Akongwu, especially Akongwu, have been really good defending on the backline. Like, those are the guys who are really going to be relied on to clean up those misses. But I think to the point that you were making and, like, the, the possessions that both of us cited, like, transition defense has been a huge problem. And the, Haw- the Hawks have been fortunate on that count. Maybe fortunate is the wrong word because they're the ones who are doing this, but, like, <laughs> Until last night's fiasco, when they were kicking the ball around like crazy, even including last night's fiasco, actually, they're third in limiting their own turnovers. So they could be getting burned in transition way worse than they currently are if they were turning the ball over more. And and we saw last night how bad things can get uh, when they're not taking good care of the basketball. But it's just, yeah, like Trey has got to be better. And there are ways that he can be better without like the physical limitations are going to remain the physical limitations defensively, but defending in transition, like it's just a question of making better decisions and putting in more effort. And that's. And when, and even on the effort perspective, it's like silly effort at times. You know what I mean? It's not like, like maybe in his mind, he's thinking like, oh, I mean, like beelining to Gary Trent right now. Like maybe in his mind, that is the, is effort, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to put so much pressure on Gary Trent. Who's about to fall out of bounds or like, oh, let me go. Let me go bother Siakam as he's like, get it. Like, I, I don't know, maybe in his mind that is effort, but it's like a silly effort. Yeah. And there's other things with their defensive fundamentals that haven't been good, even apart from Trey. Like, yeah, 100%. Getting, he's not the only. They're, they're getting killed on their own glass. Yep. Which is something that should be fixable. Like, they're not, they're not a small team. They start too big. So, you know, they start John Collins and Clint Capella. Like, they should be better on the glass than they've been. One thing I'll say there is Clint Capella does not look very good to start this season. And one thing, like Clint Capella has always had really positive impact on his team's rebounding, especially defensive rebounding. Like, um, And I think in general to start this season, he just hasn't looked quite right. Doesn't He's not getting off the ground as much. And it's, it's showing both in his rebounding rates and in his, honestly, his finishing offensively as well. He's only shooting 53%, which... For a guy who's, you know, all of his offensive opportunities are coming right around the bucket is concerning. He's a career 62% shooter. His rebound rates have fallen off a cliff to start the season. 
And I do think that has impacted them defensively and as a team because he was their most important defensive rebounder, like whether he's actually securing the rebound or boxing out or whatever he's doing. So Capella's falling off a bit to start the season, I think has had more of an impact than more people have realized. And I also wonder if if this continues, well, not wonder, I'm sure it will. If this continues, if that means more Okongwu, like if it's a Okongwu time. Well, okay, I do think it's a Okongwu time, but that's mostly <laughs> because I'm totally in the tank for a Kongu. I I would push back I love a, a Kongu, bit yeah. on the Capella thing. Like I agree that he's not physically where he was at a couple years ago. He had that Achilles injury that he doesn't seem to have ever like fully yeah. recovered from. Cuz 2 years ago I, he was great. I think part of the issue with the defensive rebounding I think it's less about Capella like not getting off the ground or not boxing out or anything like that. I mean it's a little bit that but to me, it's more that they are just allowing a ton of dribble penetration. And both he and Okongwu, like I mentioned before, it's kind of up to them to put out those fires. They're having to come over and help. And then I think it's on the Hawks' wings. And like, you know, Collins included. DeAndre Hunter, whose rebounding has been super poor, I think. Like, they need those guys to be crashing in and boxing out and cleaning the defensive glass when the big men are going to help and having to contest shots because of the dribble penetration. Like that to me is what's not really happening right now. So I said perplexing because I do think that this team has the potential to be really good. Yeah. Maybe the defense is just going to remain bad. And I did cite this, like when they made the trade, I was excited about them getting Murray and thought he could help them in a lot of different ways. But I did say like, there is only so much that a perimeter defender can do. And, you know, that's that's part of it too, where like the the help that Murray can provide, he's really good at doing it at the top of the floor. Given his like defensive acumen and his physical attributes, still not a very good low man. You know, like not, yeah. not great at doing that stuff uh, closer to the basket. So we're seeing, I guess, some of the limitations with that. But... I'm curious to see how the offensive fit develops because I think that's been a little bit clunky so far as well. Even though, you know, both him and Trey have really had their moments. Like Trey was obviously awful last night and full credit to the Raptors defense that completely flummoxed him with their anticipation, their size, their speed. But like that was one of the worst games I've ever seen him play up to that point, you know, even against the Bucks defense that we just spent how long talking about. He carved that coverage up. He scored like 42 yeah. points in that game. The, so the Raptors has, being without Fred Van Vliet and and just ending up throwing all length at him all game definitely seemed to have him out of sorts. Yeah, but like, and, and that's true. And again, full credit to the Raptors defense. They made that happen for the most part. But to me, part of it also was this issue that the Hawks offenses had not just this year, but a lot this year as they're trying to work Murray in, where I just feel like it's a little bit predictable. And I feel like the Raptors were able to sit on some of those passes because the Hawks are telegraphing them a bit. Like they have options A, B, and C that they want to hit in their sets. And then it's like not a ton of improvisation or creativity outside of that. You know, like Steve Jones Jr., like a great analyst uh, who does the Dunker Spot podcast, he likes to talk about playing outside of the play, where it's like, okay, those options have been taken away. Now, are you finding a seam somewhere else? Like, this is no longer the set that we were running. It's a little bit just chaotic. And what are you doing at that point, you know? Are you making reads? Are you able to keep the, the defense in rotation? Are you able to extend advantages? And that's just what I don't see the Hawks really doing right now. It's like when they don't get to those two or three like baked in options with the sets that they're running. It's like an ISO. It breaks down into an ISO every single time. And that's what I was going to say. I think their offense has been disappointing. Despite the fact that it's top 10, it's ninth. It's been disappointing when you have the offensive talent they have. And one of the things that's been very easy to see if you watch them is that they're a lot more ISO centric than they have been in years past. They're up to fourth in ISO frequency, which now listen, I completely like, I'm not just anti-ISO, like the very nature of it. I understand that they've got two really dynamic guards who have pretty awesome offensive abilities and they're efficient in isolation. I'm not saying that the you know ISO frequency shouldn't have gone up this year. I understand that it did. But 
to your point about predictability and the fact that too many possessions seem to be devolving into isolation because they almost don't know what else to do. I think that's different than just, hey, we've got these great ISO scores. We're just going to throw them the ball and see what happens. Like I, I think the way you get there says a lot about your team too. And the way the Hawks are getting there seems to be because they don't know what they're doing sometimes, or they don't know how to adapt on the fly in the middle of a possession. And that shouldn't be happening for a team with such a, like dynamic offensive talent. So to me, as silly as it may sound, given that they have a bottom five D, like I almost want to say them being ninth offensively, but the way they've done it has been more disappointing to me than the defense, which on some level was predictable. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just curious. I, I think the fit will get smoother. Like I think him yeah. and DeJounte will sort of figure some things out. And also most of the teams are going to play like they will be able to find favorable matchups that yes. Trey and DeJounte can pick at. And even like Collins, you know, like if you get him a big on small mismatch, he can eat that in the post. I think that Raptors team is like particularly well equipped to defend the Hawks because they are so switchable. And even their big defenders, like, you know, what the primary defenders they had on Trey Young were last night with like with Fred, with Fred Van Vliet out of the lineup. It was OG Ananobi, Scotty Barnes and Precious Achua. Six seven, six nine, six nine. Those are the guys who were the primary defenders on Trey, and he couldn't shake them. These weren't switches that he was engineering. Like those were his primary defenders, and there wasn't a whole lot that he could do with them. So, I think that's a team that's sort of uniquely equipped, maybe to bottle him up. Where you can watch that game against the Bucks, where I, I like I think the Bucks have a better defense than the Raptors do, but because of their scheme, that's actually pretty like Trey's well equipped to score against that type of scheme where he has space in the middle of the floor. And the one thing I will say is the one thing I guess I could take away from that Raptors game that I would say is a positive in the big picture for the Hawks. And it's something I've noticed in general watching them so far uh, now that DeJounte's there is that like, you know, the Raptors and under Nick Nurse, especially who have become known for these very creative defensive schemes, these very funky defensive schemes designed to, eliminate star players right and especially stars that are kind of on an island we've seen them do it against James Harden years ago in Houston and we've seen them do it against Trey Young whether it's like the attention they give him, whether it's boxing ones um fronting him at half court when he doesn't have the ball like all these things what I found interesting and what has been happening throughout the season so far is teams aren't selling out as much anymore to stop Trey Young because they can't because he's got DeJounte Murray beside him. And I do think that over time, as they figure each other out, figure this kind of new offensive uh, identity out, that that can only benefit Trey and the Hawks because, okay, the Raptors are uniquely equipped to maybe bottle him up even without having to get that funky because of all their length and switchability and stuff. But in general, if teams can't sell out to stop Trey Young the way they used to, not every team has three, six, seven guys that can just switch on to him, right? Like at some point, I do think he's going to be able to take advantage of what Murray's presence has alleviated from a pressure perspective. And that's one thing, even in getting curb stomped by 30 points last night, I did notice that early that the Raptors just weren't selling out to stop him the way, because look, they they were switchable and fine. To, like they could have done this last year too, and they didn't. Like they're, they were a lot more funky with the way they tried to stop him. But it's easier to do that when you don't have a DeJounte Murray beside you. Yeah, that's interesting. I have a bit of a different read on that. I actually okay. don't think that Murray has alleviated all that much pressure. Interesting. Because because when, when Trey's doing his pick and roll thing, DeJounte doesn't have a ton of off-ball gravity. Like His defender is usually pinching in to try and disrupt that stuff. And I haven't seen a ton from... like To me, the biggest boon that they've gotten so far from Murray is his ability to keep the offense humming when Trey's on the bench. In terms of like the two of them together, it hasn't been bad, but it's been a lot of my turn, your turn, and not necessarily the two of them working super well in concert with one another. And I think that's something they still need to figure out where, okay, if Trey is running pick and roll and DeJounte is off the ball, is he moving around and cutting? Like, is he ready to explode into the catch and punch a gap rather than just sort of chilling on the perimeter waiting for a kickout pass that the defense isn't all that worried about? I haven't gotten the sense that that's really done a ton to alleviate pressure. I think the Raptors thing was sort of specific to the Raptors and that right. they wanted to just be able to switch everything and they had the personnel to do it and then stay home. 
But I think there's still a, a lot more that they could do to get those guys working together in better harmony. And, and that, that goes for Trey working off the ball as well, which I think he's been maybe slightly better at with DeJounte coming in. A few more of his threes are coming off of the catch than they, they were in the past, but not as much as they could. Um, do, do you want to tackle this breaking news right now on the pod, or should we just save it for uh, a later Let me episode? check my phone to see what this breaking news is. Wow. <laughs> Steve Nash, gone. You know, uh, last night, I was sitting beside Samson Folk, friend of the show, in the media section at Scotiabank Arena. And when the Pacers were making that furious comeback in Brooklyn, I joked, oh man, if they blow this, this is probably the night where Nash is done. But they ended up winning that game and he was still done. Okay, we're almost, we're over 50 minutes into this episode. Let's let's do a Nets episode. Let's, let's tackle... The Nets as a whole, Nash is firing on a on a Nets only episode within the next few days. Do people want a Nets only episode at this point though? Like I get the sense that people are just sort of tired of hearing about them, tired of talking about them. But obviously we we will address the Nash thing in some detail. Yes. At some point. I I don't know that we want to do a Nets only episode. We gotta we need some levity to balance out the the yeah. dark cloud. That is the Brooklyn Nets right now. Like that's yeah, in more ways than one. All right, though. So should I just give you one last Hawks note then? Yes. Just about their overall, um, I guess, win profile or loss profile, if you want to call it that. So they they are four and three. Yeah. But their wins have come against Houston, Orlando, and Detroit. Yeah. And their losses have come to the Hornets, mm-hmm. and then the Bucks and the Fredless Raptors, the Van Vleetless Raptors, who beat them by thirty. So. Four and three, but I'd say with some reasons for concern. Yeah, I would say more reasons for concern than for optimism so yes. far. Uh, okay, so... Oh, and that- sorry, sorry, I lied. Because I, I I said one more note. Well, this was okay. part of it. Because I was going to say that's worth the record. That's what they've done against decent teams so far. And then their upcoming schedule. Knicks, which, okay, fine. But then Pelicans, Bucks twice, these red-hot Jazz, Sixers twice, Celtics, Raptors, Cavs. That's their next 10 games. We are about to find out just how concerned we yeah. ought to be about this team. I mean, maybe they see this stretch of schedule and they shape up. Yeah. Because like I said, as much as there are some structural issues, there are certain things like the transition defense, for instance, yeah. that could be easily fixable. Right. So we'll see. They could but also yeah, go like been, two and eight in this stretch. They could. They could. Yeah. And uh, maybe we'll just set a date to to revisit the Hawks conversation and yeah. see how they did during that stretch and how disastrous it got because there are red flags and I'm very curious to see how they fare when the going gets very tough. Um, yeah. You mentioned them getting blown out by the Hornets. Why don't we start our make or miss segment right there? Because right. my first make or miss for you today, Cash, is after seven games, the Charlotte Hornets at three and four playing a fast, fun brand of basketball and beating some pretty solid teams along the way, already have you rethinking your 55-loss prediction for this season. All of this without LaMelo, by the way. Well, make, in the sense, rethinking it, yes, but miss in the sense I still think they're going to be really bad in the grand scheme of things. Like I, Some encouraging things, some fun things for sure. To be doing this without LaMelo when I said the fact that they were starting uh, such a bad team was starting without LaMelo, like such a bad supporting cast was starting without LaMelo, is going to bury them off the top. The fact that they've managed to be somewhat respectable, definitely encouraging, and does make me rethink, okay, is this actually a 55-loss team in the big picture? But I still don't think this is going to hold up over a large sample size. I think they'll slowly fade, and I think as they fade, they will whether purposefully or not, end up in the tank. So I think after 82 games, they'll have lost 50 plus in and around the 55 range. But I will admit that, yes, they are at least making me rethink that possibility given how respectable they've been. That's a good one. I like that, maybe. Miss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. I'll just say we, we were pretty hard on the, the team's talent level when we were talking about them before the season, but apologies due to... Gordon Hayward, Kelly Oubre, P.J. Washington, Dennis Smith Jr., who I'd forgotten existed 
but is a player that I was actually quite high on at one point in time. And it's very cool to see him back in the league and performing at quite a high level on both ends of the floor. Jalen McDaniels, um, Nick Richards. I mean, like all these guys are showing out. I'm kind of with you in that. I don't think it's going to continue at this rate, but I think they're going to be way better than I expected them to be one way or another. Fair. All right. In the spirit of rethinking things, I think this, uh, this works to ask you because it might make you rethink whether the Timberwolves will be the best regular season team in the West, but it's not actually Timberwolves related. It's that two weeks into the season, the Portland Trailblazers are tied atop the West standings with the Suns at five and one. They are one of three teams along with the Suns and the Cavs who are top 10 on both ends of the court. They have so far, although it's early, survived this Dame absence due to a calf injury. Given everything I talked about last week and why I actually believe they are at least legitimately good, if you know, maybe not a fringe contender, but legitimately good, everything we've seen from them so far, the kind of spirit around them, make or miss Joel Fon, the Portland Trailblazers can actually win the Northwest Division, which includes the Timberwolves you picked to finish first miss. in the West, the Nuggets we both think are in the West Finals, and those surprising Utah Jazz. Miss. Uh, no. Okay, okay. I mean, look, great start. It's very nice to see that their defense has sort of figured out how they want to play. Like they have an identity that I think actually makes sense now with the personnel that they have on hand. I think it's going to look that much better once GP2 is in the mix. Love what I've seen from Shaden Sharp. Love what I've seen from Josh Hart. They're going to be without Dame now for a bit, but he's obviously looked electric when he's been in the lineup. So all positive indicators, but at the end of the day, this team is still a clear notch below. I mean, at least the Nuggets. Like, I think it's fair to wonder, given how the Wolves have looked so far, whether that team is actually going to be, you know, contending for the Northwest crown. Like, that's that's fair to ask. And I think maybe the Blazers wind up with as good or better record than the Wolves. I don't think they're on the level that the Nuggets are on. And I think whether it is Denver, whether it is Minnesota, I don't think it's going to be Utah. But one way or another, I think it's really unlikely that the Blazers keep this up to the point that they're actually going to be able to win that division. Um, Okay. My second make or miss for you, the biggest challenger to the team we spent the first half of this pod talking about uh, in the Eastern conference, the biggest challenger to the bucks is not the Boston Celtics as we might've thought before the season or the Philadelphia 76ers as some might've thought, including this idiot right here predicted (laughs) that they would make the conference finals. But is indeed the five and one Cleveland Cavaliers who have gotten off to a rip roaring start, fourth in offense, third in defense, all without Darius Garland playing. Well, he's played 12 minutes. The Cleveland Cavs are the biggest challenger to the Bucks in the East. Make or miss? Miss. But that's not to take away from what they've done to start the season. I think they're a really good team. I made a whole video about it on the Scores YouTube page when they got Donovan Mitchell about how good I thought they could be. Donovan Mitchell gives them someone to carry the offense when Garland is on the bench, or in this case, sidelined, whereas last year they were struggling to create anything with Garland off the court. Now when Darius Garland's off the court, they can just have the guy who's led elite offenses throughout his NBA career on the court. Like The defense obviously behind them behind Garland Mitchell between Allen and Mobley is insane. They like Portland, uh, as I mentioned, are one of three teams with Phoenix as well that are top 10 on both ends of the court through the first couple weeks of the season. I like this. I'm not taking anything away from them in terms of what they are, but I don't think I not don't think I would not pick them to win four out of seven against Boston. May, uh, yeah. Could they beat Philly? Sure. I don't think I still think the matchup with Toronto is a really fun matchup between two young teams that I think would almost be a pick where I'm not necessarily ready to say one or the other is better. And so as I start to think about it, it's like I think they might be the third or fourth best team in the East, but do I think they're the clear-cut second best behind Milwaukee? No, not yet. Uh, I, I've been really impressed with what I've seen from them 100%. so far. And I mean, the fact that they, like Mitchell looks incredible. And the fact that the defense hasn't suffered at all from his arrival, which is in part due to the fact that he is actually really competing at that end of the floor in a way that we haven't seen from him in the last couple of years in Utah, is really encouraging and really cool to see. And maybe Garland coming back actually disrupts that. You know, these things don't always work out in terms of, a, you know, one plus one equals two kind of way in the NBA. But 
I can't wait to see it. Like I can't wait till he gets back and just to see how good this team can ultimately become because they look they look awesome. All right. Well, I mean, I don't think either one of us wanted to get too heavy on today's episode, but I got to ask you this question. Kyrie Irving, ability-wise, we know is fine. But given all the baggage, which obviously not going to sugarcoat it, now includes him being an almost disturbingly proud sharer of anti-Semitic content, given how players who have done anything near this foolish and wrong in the past have been treated by the league and their teams even if you want to consider off the court like his nike contract is up after the season and there were already reports before this latest episode that they were not interested in renewing that you can talk about like brands maybe pulling away from him and stuff but as crazy as this may sound make or miss Kyrie Irving could be out of the league next season well could be and will be are two very different things I'd say it's a make that he could be I think that if he is, it will be as much his decision as it will the NBA's. I, like, I agree with that. And I think, you know, that could be because he just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. Like we've seen or we've heard that he just sort of treats being an NBA player as any other job. It's not his life. It's not something that he's so deeply obsessed with in the way that some other players maybe are. And he frankly seems fairly put out at the idea of having to answer for the things that he posts on social media and wants to be free of any sense of accountability and maybe he'll just come to a point where he realizes that in order to do that he just needs to get out of the limelight i i think the unfortunate truth of the matter is yes other players who have like i've seen a lot of people mention myers leonard and they're like well he dropped one anti-semitic slur and he's out of the league Myers Leonard was not a good NBA player. That's the fact. Like if Myers Leonard was as good as Kyrie Irving, he would still be in the NBA. He would have been fined, maybe suspended. He would have been disciplined in some way, but he would still have a job in the NBA. Players as good as Kyrie, they they will be able to find work in the league. Like as much as it might just be a, a total headache for whichever team ultimately decides to sign him, I think those options will still be available to him in spite of all the baggage that comes along with it. And I think there's still a chance that he'll wind up out of the league next year, but I think there there's a good chance that that would be because he chose not to play and not necessarily because there was no team in the league that was willing to give him a contract. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. I think that was well said, and that's, that's my thoughts on it too. Yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> Brooklyn, I, I can't... Has there been like a more depressing start to any season for any team that you can remember? No. And unfortunately, okay, well, I, I was going to say, unfortunately, it's it's predictable. I Obviously, the depths to which Kyrie has gone to, that I don't think was predictable. As foolish as he's been in the past, I didn't see this coming from him. But on the whole, Kyrie putting his foot in his mouth the Nets getting off to a bad start, Nash getting fired. Like, from a big picture perspective, I don't think it's that surprising. (laughs) You know? Like, Ben Simmons not looking, like, quite game-ready yet. Like, all the... Like, maybe in some ways they were worried. Like, again, the Kyrie example. Like, he's, you know, him putting his foot in his mouth, not surprising. The fact that he did it to such a degree with sharing anti-Semitic content. Yeah, I, I was not expecting that, but... Again, like big picture wise, really? even, even after his... he shared that Alex Jones clip. No, actually, that's a fair started. point because once he did that, anything was on the table for him. And by the way, he also said in a press conference Saturday, whenever it was, when he continued to put his foot in his mouth, that I, th- I think he said something along the lines of like he doesn't agree with Alex Jones when it comes to his conspiracy about you know the mass shootings that did not really happen, but that what he, the the actual theory he was peddling in the video about the whole New World Order thing that was true. So, um, but anyway, yeah, just I, all of which say, I don't think as depressing as it is, I don't think it's like unpredictable. I think we could have predicted that the net season would start like this with Kyrie engaged in chaos. Ben Simmons, not really looking right yet. Steve Nash getting fired, the team off to a slow start. Like in a lot of ways, the nets are who we thought they were. It's just terrible. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's 
surprising necessarily, but it is still as depressing as I can remember the first two weeks of a season being for any team. Yeah, can't argue uh, so, with that. Yeah. Uh, look forward to our Nets-only episode later in the week. <laughs> yeah. uh, until then, Cash, I will give the mic to you to uh, give us a fan shout-out for this week. All right. Jay Rich on Twitter, at A View Production from Guelph, Ontario. Shout-out Guelph. I'm actually going there to visit some family next weekend. Um, anyway, tweeted at hey, You can visit us- Joseph Wolf on Memorial Park while you're there. Wait, what's this? As named for my great-grandfather, Joseph. Are you serious? My namesake. Yeah. He's got a park named after him in Guelph, Ontario? He was a big muckety-muck in Guelph. Yeah, he was like a developer there. So, Wow, that's cool. All right. Well, maybe maybe I'll take a picture beside it and send it to you. Please Um, do. Anyway, well, Jay Rich, you should go visit Joseph Wolfon Park since you're in Guelph. But anyway, Jay Rich uh, reached out to us a couple of weeks ago on Twitter saying that he is a fairly new Raptors fan and was looking for some balanced, uh, a balanced NBA podcast that includes Toronto fairly in the league's discussions, but also talks about the league as a whole and uh, ended up checking us out and says we're exactly what he was looking for. And that we have a new subscriber locked in. So Jay Rich, we appreciate you. We are glad that you found what you were looking for here at Pound the Rock. And we hope that you spread the good word to others who may be looking for similar NBA content that you were. Usual reminder, whether like Jay Rich, you're a new listener or whether you have been listening from the beginning, reach out to us because we want to give you a shout out as a thank you for supporting the show and allowing us to do what we do. So reach out via Twitter, at Joey underscore double Y-O-U, at Joseph Cacharo, email joe.wolfond at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram. Send me a DM at joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, maybe who your favorite team is, what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. And I promise you, we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Tell one of those future episodes, that's it for me, Wolfond. That's it for me too. Thank you, Jay Rich. Thank you to all our listeners for riding with us. Uh, We will be back later in the week and we're going to get back into the swing of doing two episodes a week as the season really gets rolling here. But for now, we are signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. (laughs) 